First, though, as you've been hearing in the news, and I know Mike Smith was talking about this, fully vaccinated Canadians will soon be exempt from having to quarantine in those quarantine hotels and for the two weeks upon returning from overseas. We heard earlier today from Health Minister Patty Haidu saying affected travellers will still have to take a COVID-19 test upon arrival and will have to stay in isolation until that test comes back negative. The difference is that fully vaccinated travellers with a right of entry to Canada, uh, will be able to uh, forego staying in a government-approved uh, or government-authorized hotel until such time that they receive their negative day one test. And that's the big change. Uh, and the um, uh, yeah, and you're also right on part two of your question, which is which uh, vaccines will be accepted. And they are only the vaccines that are approved in Canada. Um, and by Health Canada. And so uh, this would um, be uh, AstraZeneca, uh, Johnson & Johnson, um, Pfizer and Moderna. And uh, of course, we'll be assessing other vaccines as we move forward into other phases. That was Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Brian Calder, the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, thanks for being with us again. Well, thank you for following up with us, as you consistently do, and it's very much appreciated. Well, it's uh, appreciated. You're always uh, willing and available to come on the program. Does this news give you some hope or uh, some light at the end of the tunnel as far as the border opening up and things getting back to some type of normal? Well, in one way, yes. In another way, it's like we're, Patty Hadou mentioned, uh, overseas, and, and we're not overseas, even though we're being treated like we're co- coming in from overseas. We are 85% vaccinated, have been for a month and a half now of our whole population. We've had two family cases here in 15 months, which were immediately came, contained and no spreading. We probably got the best uh, record in all of North America vis-a-vis COVID. And we're no threat to anybody. And so why we would not be able to go through the border, which we're fully vaccinated, many of the half of us here are dual citizens, we're Canadian citizens as well, and can't go to our doctor for a one-hour visit and come straight back to Point Roberts unless we lock down for 14 days is bizarre. But it is encouraging that they're following our pilot project, which we introduced on your show from three months ago, where we would volunteered to pay for and rapid test at our border for our at our cost and our expense, and we were turned down flat. Uh, no, that's not allowed. Well, why the heck isn't it allowed? Uh, do you think maybe is there a chance they might look at that again, given that they do seem to be shifting, albeit slowly, to that idea of testing rather than that mandatory quarantine? Well. I, I would hope they would on a humanitarian basis, but there's no evidence that they would care about that uh, in the past. Uh, it's been a military mindset, a lockdown, fine, penalize, threaten, intimidate, and no humanitarian considerations or sensible, safe, health-driven uh, uh, analysis and action. It just has not happened to date. Do you get any sense that 
this announcement and we're expecting more news on the border within the next days or weeks. So this announcement and Patty Haidu didn't give an actual date for it, but said she was hoping that it would go into place the first week of July. Uh, yesterday, we were speaking with Len Saunders. I know you know Len, immigration lawyer based in Blaine. He stands by what he is hearing from people on the U.S. side with the U.S. Border Service saying they do, that he does believe the U.S. is going to open the border on July, or sorry, June 22nd. Do you, do you have any sense or are you hearing that as well? Well, Lynn is probably more plugged in than anybody, certainly than me, but, uh, and he, I think, broke that story a couple of weeks ago on your show that he had heard that the Washington-Biden administration was going to open the border. And he does not say anything lightly. He, he knows what he's doing. He's probably the best immigration lawyer on the West Coast. And, and from there, uh, when you started following up on it, and Global TV did as well, that uh, Washington said, oh, no, we, we haven't heard anything about that. And my reaction to back to Lynn was, of course they're going to say that. They don't want the media all over them. They want to try and make a deal with Ottawa to soften the adversarial, what might turn into the adversarial position where the U.S. opens and Canada doesn't. And now you're into a political confrontation and an, and an economic confrontation, I think, that both sides want to avoid at all costs. So what's happening now, I think, is the political dance working with the medical side of it and trying to accommodate both interests. And that's what we're going through now. And in large part, the media's got hold of it. So it's, it's getting the full uh, light of day, you might say. And so it's, 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 it's working towards opening but it's still got a lot of bumps on the road before it happens. Right, and nobody, uh, I get that too. They don't want to tip their hand because people will just hear border reopening and think it's done and we're out of it and we don't need to do any of the other measures, which is something they're trying to avoid as well. Agreed, yep. Uh, If they were to open it, so say we got to the point where the U.S. opens it unilaterally and says, absolutely, the the border is open. And on the Canadian side, more of a phased approach If the Canadian side said, "Okay, if Canadians can go to the United States, the states have opened their border. But on on this side, you have to be fully vaccinated. Canadians will be the first ones that could travel back and forth and wouldn't face all of the, the quarantine and the protocols. What would that mean for Point Roberts? Oh, I, I think Point Roberts would, again, uh, get that 90% that's missing from their economic health, uh, in large part, back again. And if I, I can see uh, one reaction might be that the homeowners here, people, there's 1,800 properties owned by Canadians down here, and that, that if the Americans open and say, yeah, come on down, I think they'll come down and they'll either have been vaccinated or they will take up the offer of our fire chief Carl and that he will vaccinate them here, the Canadians from the lower mainland or wherever. And they'll come down here for a couple of weeks or a month as they do, uh, are prone to do, thankfully. And uh, they'll go back and they'll say, here's my ticket. I'm vaccinated. I'm going back home. I live at one, two, three, four main street in Surrey. Uh, I'm going back to work on Monday. Do what you do what you want. Uh, come and get us, to threaten to find us, whatever. I think you'll have almost some sort of civil unrest will be created 
if if they try and make people who have been vaccinated from here go going back home get locked down for 14 days i don't i think they'll refuse to do it all right well we will wait and see and hopefully get more information on this in the coming days so brian calder thanks so much again we'll talk to you again soon always a pleasure jill thank you there will be two sets of draws each set of draws uh, for those that are uh, 18 and over will be eligible for a hundred thousand dollar prize There'll be three prizes uh, in the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority and one uh, of $100,000 each and then $100,000 each prize in each regional health authority. And then for the 12 to 17, again, two sets of draws, 10 scholarships each of $25,000 and then 10 sets of scholarships, $25,000 each for the second draw. That was Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries CEO Manny Atwal speaking earlier today alongside Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister talking about the millions in cash and scholarships that will be handed out for people who roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated. Well, joining me to talk about this and other pandemic issues is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Disease Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thanks so much for making some time for us. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts about this idea of a lottery? We've seen some of the states do this as well, and Manitoba now jumping on this type of initiative to get people vaccinated. Well, I think we're doing very well in Canada in terms of the rate of vaccination, especially in the past few weeks. Of all countries in the world with a population of 500,000 or more, Canada is second only to Israel in terms of the number of people that have received first doses And at that, we're only behind by about 0.4%. So we've done well. In Manitoba, there's two things that are different. They're still within the grips of the third wave of the pandemic. It has still not been broken down. And there is significant penetration of the Delta variant that requires acceleration of vaccination, especially giving both doses. So I think those things make Manitoba different, and it has led them to propose this lottery system to encourage more rapid vaccination that was announced today. And I don't know if we have anything to to base it on, but do we know if initiatives like this actually work and get people who might be a bit hesitant to get the vaccine? Well, in Canada, we're running about 10 to maybe 12% vaccine hesitancy. And my sense is that in Canada, at least, uh, lottery systems and the like will not work for this uh, group of individuals. It's really for everyone else. And in Manitoba, there's a special need that I just described. The United States is at 40 percent, if not more, of vaccine hesitancy. And they really have to multiply the incentive programs and make them even more inventive to try and get people to get uh, to get their shots. And you may have heard in West Virginia, they're offering guns as an incentive. So they really, uh, they really have to, 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 to really uh, dig deep here to try to get people to get vaccinated. Thankfully, we're not there in Canada. And we'll see if it works in the United States. No firm conclusions can be drawn as of yet. Uh, I know the health minister was speaking to reporters just a short time ago today. He was asked about vaccination totals and the numbers in B.C. and said, really, at this point, the only limitation is supply and getting that supply so people can get, uh, I would think, for for a lot of what he's talking about there is the second dose. Well, I think the other thing that's a limitation is the different ways to get into the system. The government system, such as it is, is serving the needs of many. But on a daily basis, I hear from people who are having difficulty getting appointments, 
difficulty getting appointments at the right time or in a place that's accessible to them. So if people are telling us it's it's difficult, then it has to be. The government says, no, it's easy. Well, the people are right. It's more difficult than it needs to be. So with this increasing supply, especially the arrival of 9 million doses of Moderna vaccine into the country this particular month, I think we should give serious thought to multiplying the ways where people can access the vaccine, more pharmacies, perhaps more doctor's offices, more clinics to remove that last barrier that will get us uh, to the new normal so more quickly. I'm still hearing from people as well that got AstraZeneca as the first shot and really conflicted on whether or not they should be getting uh, choosing the AstraZeneca as the second shot or choosing the uh, mRNA vaccine. Is there any advice for that or is that something that people are going to have to research and make that personal choice? Well, I think that right now AstraZeneca is being considered in British Columbia as a second shot. The information that we have from clinical trials and from the use of the vaccine in the real world is that if the first dose was well tolerated, no significant side effects, then the risk of a significant side effect of a second AstraZeneca dose after a first AstraZeneca dose is vanishingly small. And there are so many more ways to get the AstraZeneca second shot right now than there are of getting the other shots. So I would seriously consider if I got the first, if I'd gotten AstraZeneca as a first shot, getting AstraZeneca as a second shot. Of course, we can't force people to get anything. They need to have their questions answered, their concerns addressed before they make the final decision. But to me, it needs to be part of our program going forward as much as uh, it can be. What about the actual coverage? That was a question that was put to me, somebody again that was making this decision the other day, curious if your actual, uh, your immunity, if you have two shots of AstraZeneca, is it less than if you mix and match uh, AstraZeneca with an mRNA? And if that was something that should be considered. And also I'm getting a lot of email from people asking about travel, if there's any chance that AstraZeneca won't be approved or won't be accepted uh, if we're going down that road of vaccine passports and traveling internationally? Vaccine passports will not be specific to the product that was received. I can reassure people in that regard. In terms of the coverage, the mix and match, AstraZeneca followed by mRNA as opposed to two AstraZeneca, there may be a theoretical benefit of mixing and matching, stimulating the immune system in two different ways. But our highest priority needs to be to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible using all of the products that are available to us. That must remain the highest priority. That's what's going to define how quickly we get back to the new normal. My guest is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. A lot of people with questions. Let's go right to the phone lines. Jerry in Vancouver, do you have a question for Dr. Conway? Yes, I do. Thanks for uh, taking my call and thanks for the continued effort in getting this uh, this vaccine issue resolved. I, I have a question about my age and the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca. I'm not hearing anybody referring to the same issues that were age-based before. I had um, um, Pfizer because I was advised I cannot have AstraZeneca because my age being 66. Then I'm not hearing anybody now referring to the fact that if you... Um, had Pfizer, you can now get AstraZeneca, or if you had Pfizer, you can get Moderna. Um, I'm just starting to wonder if the only option I have is Pfizer again. So at first, the AstraZeneca vaccine was not made available to individuals over 65. 
because it seemed to work less well in the clinical trial that was done. In terms of following up a Pfizer with a Pfizer or a Pfizer with a Moderna, as far as we know, both would be acceptable and provide equal protection going forward in someone like yourself. Okay, uh, thank you very much. That's clear. All right, Jerry, thanks for the phone call. Let's go to Jason in Burnaby. What's your question? Hey, guys. Um, I had COVID in December, and I had my first shot of AstraZeneca. I've been kind of told that you are, you've built up enough antibodies. Do I really need the second shot? You may not. It turns out that people who had immunity through natural infection and then had one shot, small number of healthcare workers that were studied in detail in that regard, had a higher level of antibodies than those who were never infected and got two shots. That being said, my advice would be to still go ahead and get a second shot of your choice to uh, maybe boost the immunity even more. It certainly won't do any harm to get that second shot. And right now, the recommendation is even in individuals who were infected and got one shot is that they go ahead and get the second shot. All right, Jason, thanks for that phone call. Let's go to Steve in Surrey. What's your question? I'm 65. I got an AstraZeneca shot at Cloverdale Community Center. And when I go online for a second shot and I want AstraZeneca again, they said I can't even request it uh, until June 14th. Uh, So I've I've got a card showing when I got an AstraZeneca shot, the first one. Um, why can't I present the card to anyone who does needles and get a second shot? So my understanding is that for AstraZeneca, it was mostly done through the pharmacy-based program, and they are providing the second shot within an eight-week time frame, getting the second shot. There was some thought in the public system, meaning the government-run system, that the second shot would be delayed a bit based on some results of the clinical trial. But my advice would be, at this point, try and get a second shot as quickly as you can of whatever kind of vaccine. That's probably the most important thing to do. And if you got AstraZeneca first, any of the three are an option. As long as you tolerated the first dose of AstraZeneca well, you'll tolerate the second one if that's what you end up getting. All right, Steve, thanks for that question as well. Mike is calling from Vernon. What's your question? Oh, hi. Uh, my question is to do with a two-part question, actually. For Pfizer, uh, after you get full vaccination, two shots, uh, are you protected or to what level are you protected against the Delta variant? And the second question is, again, after the second shot of Pfizer, how long does it take for full effectiveness of the uh, vaccination to ramp up to as high as it's going to go. So the second shot of Pfizer will provide maximum protection, being about 95% based on the clinical trial, within a week or less. So it really is a boosting effect. There isn't that two-week waiting period after the first shot before any efficacy kicks in. In terms of protection against the Delta variant, it turns out that it is probably less protective against the Delta variant than against the other variants, including the one that's been around since the beginning of the pandemic. But it is probably enough to prevent serious infection. We don't know if it'll prevent asymptomatic infection, 
as well, and we're going to learn that as we go forward. What we do know is if you only get one shot of Pfizer or pretty well anything else, that is largely not protective enough against the Delta variant. All right. Thanks for that phone call. Uh, interesting. So if you, uh, the second shot of, of Pfizer, as you said, you're 95% in a week or less. Is that true also if, if your second shot is Pfizer, but your first shot was AstraZeneca? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure we have all of the information to answer it accurately. I would probably say it may be a little bit, I could argue both ways, delayed or quicker, sure. to tell you the truth, based on the science. So I would probably assume it's about the same, just to go to go forward uh, with uh, something that will be practical for us all. All right. Let's go to Joseph in White Rock. What is your question? Uh, doctor, I had a brain stroke in November of 2020. Uh, I survived. I had my first dose of Pfizer at the end of March, March 2-7, just about a month ago, a little over a month ago. And I'm preparing to take the second dose. Uh, I don't have a choice. But my, I was afraid to take AstraZeneca at any time, just out of an abundance of caution about the blood clotting possibility. Uh, what do you think about I know I won't be offered it for the second dose. It's only offered at pharmacies, as far as I know. I'll probably get offered either more Pfizer for the second dose or Moderna. And I'm fine with both of those, obviously. But what do you think about AstraZeneca and the clotting? Well, first of all, I'm very glad you survived. And I hope that you survived largely with a recovery of your health from a very serious medical events such, such as a stroke. Um, yes, I think I have. Good. So I would say I agree with you completely. Some people get strokes because their blood blood clots too easily, and this clot spreads to an artery in the brain and causes a stroke. So I would not take any medicine in a situation like yours that has as a side effect blood clots. So I think that was a very wise decision. Thank you. All right. Thanks for that question. Let's go to Margaret in Langley. Margaret, what's your question? Hi, good day. Um, yeah, I want to ask Dr. Conway, you hear about uh, the vaccine passport. You know, sometimes they say, oh, it's, it's not, it can't be a real passport, obviously. But um, uh, just wondering, are they available yet? And where would one access to get one? Yeah, I'm not sure they're available yet, but they'll be an important part of reopening of society at a world level. I think Canadian authorities have been fairly clear in saying that within Canada, there's not a great enthusiasm towards having them made mandatory. However, for certain activities, they may, such as going to arenas and hockey games and the like. That's still yet to be determined. But internationally, they'll be very important. And I'm sure we'll all find out when they are available and we'll make sure that we have them on our phones, our electronic devices, hard copies, and whenever it else it is we need to travel. All right, Margaret, thanks for that. Mike in Langley, we have about a minute left. What's your question? Hey, um, thanks for taking my question. Um, what are the effects of the mRNA vaccine with those who suffer from MS? That's an interesting question. Uh, people with MS would probably have been excluded from the clinical trials just because that's how things are done. I'm not aware of any reports that show a poor response to the vaccine on the one hand, which would be my main concern, or any new side effects. And people with MS are eligible to receive the vaccine in British Columbia, the same as everyone else. 
All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for all of those questions and apologies if we didn't get to you on the open line. Uh, Great questions and thanks everybody for calling in. And Dr. Conway, thanks to you as well so much uh, for joining us, uh, for talking about this and taking calls. I hope to talk to you soon. A pleasure. Let's all get to the new normal together as quick as we can. Sounds good. Thanks for being with us. Well, we have been talking a lot about the discovery on the grounds or near the grounds of the Kamloops Residential School, talking about what needs to be done next, but also taking a look at what happened at the time and trying to figure out how do we move forward from here. Well, my next guest tells a story of being put up for adoption, her mother making that choice rather than have her go to a residential school. And Tina Taphouse joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Tina, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon, Jill. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to, first of all, just quickly acknowledge that I'm talking to you from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Katsi and Kwantlen First Nations. All right. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Can you talk a bit more? I know you you spoke with uh, some of my colleagues at Global News as well. Uh, You were put up for adoption. Your mother actually also worked at the residential school. When did you first realize or when did you find out what had happened? So um, I met met my um, mother in July of 2012. So over the years, I've been able to ask questions here or there about, you know, her decision, you know, why I was put up for adoption. And um, she did tell me she was, you know, attended residential school, but she wasn't, she didn't really say what happened there. But, you know, she told me that she did make the decision um, to put me up for adoption because if she had kept me, she would have had, she uh, would have had to, I would have had to go to residential school. And to me, like, I can't imagine a mother having just two choices, you know, and and um, both of them, she wouldn't have her child in the end. And were you put up for adoption then, right, as you were born and that you never knew your mom when you were a child? Yeah, I was um, I was adopted as a, as a newborn. And adopted into a non-Indigenous family. And how do you, when you look back at that and, and you think about when you were a child and your upbringing, what was that like? I, um, since, uh, I'll be honest, I've only found out at, about the term 60 scoop about three years ago. I had no, I, I had never heard of it and I had no idea that I was part of it. So, um yeah, the, I've learned a lot over that time. Um, and so when I met my mother and I asked questions, she did tell me that she did attend the um, St. Joseph's Mission um, School uh, just outside of Williams Lake, but she did go and work at the Kamloops um, Indian Residential School, and she made that tough decision to give me up just so I wouldn't have to attend that school. Did she tell you anything about the conditions at the school? Or I, I mean, you can kind of connect the dots, I guess, but, but did she give you any uh, kind of reason, uh, more concrete reasons as to what was happening there or what she saw there as an employee that, that I imagine would have been a big part of that decision? 
Yeah, I'll be honest. It was only on this past Friday when I saw a family posting on Facebook that their mom and their grandma was number 41 at that school or any school. And that's something I I had I didn't even know um, that my mom had went through. So I found out, you know, that she was number 123 um, when she went. And it just devastated me and threw me through a loop. And she said after that, you know, she was unable to talk anymore about it. So I, I really don't know anything about her job and, and what she did there. And I and I haven't asked and I and I don't think I will. All right. Uh, you mentioned the 60s scoop. And if people aren't familiar with that, talking about the, the policy where the federal government uh, made attempts to assimilate Indigenous children, putting Indigenous children with non-Indigenous families, uh, I know a lot of people, certainly it wasn't covered in school curriculum. I'm not sure if it's in the curriculum now that people learn about that. Uh, Were you surprised at what you learned about this? Or do you think that we need to be paying more attention and to be looking back and learning about this part of our history? Yeah, I was definitely surprised. I mean, the term 60 scoops has been around for years. I'd never heard of it. I know that, you know, when you and I went to school, we didn't learn about anything at all about residential schools. But I do see it, you know, we have Aboriginal support workers in our school system now that um, help help um, Indigenous students, but and also educate other people. Um, I know that there's First Nations studies in school, so um, kids can go and learn about that. But, um, yeah, uh, there, there's a lot to be learned about 60 scoops. So, oh, yeah, sorry, um, and to answer your question. Um, basically, kids were taken out of their homes, ripped out of their homes, away from their families, and we were either put into resi- uh, residential school, and then after a point, they were um, we were adopted out into non-Indigenous families. And there were actual TV ads and... Um, newspaper ads. You can look them up for the six for adopting out Indigenous children, and the things they said were were horrific. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I understand that you started reconnecting with your biological father. That you were able to to find each other uh, back in the nineties. Yeah, he went through the adoption reunion registry and found me in ninety four and. Um, I met my mother in 2012, and I have, uh, you know, about 25 brothers and sisters and huge family and community that have welcomed me in, and it's been an amazing, overwhelming, but good journey. Hmm. What What do you think of, then, when you look back at what that choice was, that choice that any mother, no no mother, should ever have had to made at, make at any point? When you look back at your life, what do you think about kind of where you've been and where you are now? Yeah. Um, well, all of my life, I've never felt any anger or hurt towards my mom. And this is obviously before I found out why I was given up for adoption. But in a way, I think it was, you know, my ancestors telling me, don't be angry at her because, you know, it wasn't her decision. Right. And and again, try to think of, of making that choice in that, it, it, I mean, it seems like the most selfless thing a mother could do on the one hand here she is giving her her child up for adoption but doing it to save her child from from some horror that maybe she's seen firsthand yeah and um 
you know, my life hasn't, I had, I had a great upbringing, great family. Um, they're the ones checking in on me right now as well. Um, but it's been a struggle. I've been in the middle like, we're a group that, um, less people know about. And, um, there's a lot of hurt within uh, our group of my brothers and sisters of 60 Scoop because they face, you know, um, the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse within their home. So, um, and then there's me, who's I've you know I'm fortunate to have a good family, and who who gave me some knowledge about you know general knowledge about my background. But there's a lot. If every Indigenous person right now is traumatized again, and we're grieving, and it's something that we've known for years. Um, but we're all grieving. And I can say that, you know, as a world and as humans, we're all grieving as well at the, at the murder of 20, 215 children. Have you heard from, from other people who, based on, on what, we're, what we have found out about the, the Kamloops school or people that maybe were also put up for adoption or were part of the 60s scoop, are you hearing from people that may have similar backgrounds or are starting to talk about that more now? It's it's everywhere in my family. So I've, you know, um, since discovering I'm a 60 scoop, um, there's faith, there's groups, and it's really comforting to be within the group to tell others how you feel because it's like I said, it's something that no one I could talk to would understand because no one else was like me. Um, so to have that net network is is great. Um, what do you think at this point people can do? And talking about Indigenous as well as non-Indigenous people, what can be done or what, what can people be doing to help people through this? Um, I, it's my friends, um, you know, that I grew up with and, and that are friends now, they're realizing that it's nothing they know about very much of. And I'm open to talking to people about it, and that's why I'm talking today. I don't really, I don't want to um, us to overshadow the story of residential school survivors. Um, I'm just talking in the aspect that there was so much trauma, and uh, I, it gets me angry. I haven't celebrated Canada Day in years, but. I can see both sides because I grew up in a white privileged world and there were a lot of things that I've found out that I never that I never knew but I can I feel I have the strength and the voice now to to talk to people about it and to answer any questions that they have. All right. Well, Tina, we'll leave it there for today, but I do appreciate so much you coming on the show and talking about this. I know a lot of people will have questions and will want to talk with you more uh, about this and so many other things. But thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, we've been talking about the new announcement from the federal government earlier today announcing that fully vaccinated Canadians and Canadian travellers will no longer require mandatory COVID-19 hotel quarantine upon arriving in Canada. No firm date, but the federal health minister saying it's hoped that will be in place in the first week of July. The exemption applying to Canadian citizens and permanent residents flying home and that also 
according to Intergovernmental Minister Dominic LeBlanc. We are joined now by Dr. David Edward Oipoon, Poon, founder of Faces for Advocacy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Well, I'm glad you were able to join us and talk more about this. Just before we get into the details and what was announced today, can you explain a little bit about your group, Faces for Advocacy, and what you do? Uh, the Faces of Advocacy was a group created last year to safely reunite binational Canadian families during the COVID-19 pandemic. So in short, um, there are a lot of Canadian families who have loved ones abroad. So be that your sister overseas, uh, be that your fiancé in America, uh, there are a number of us in uh families that just aren't within the country. After the COVID travel restrictions came in, family unification was not possible. So the face of advocacy came together. We are over 11,000 members now and are working towards safe reunification. And we were directly responsible for the extended family and compassionate exemptions into Canada that were announced in October. That becomes relevant today. I I understand, too, that there were some questions about this and the announcement of this policy. So is it safe to say that family, the extended family of Canadians, permanent residents also that are fully vaccinated, they will fall under these new rules as well? Correct. So Minister Haidu did make mention of anyone who is allowed into Canada would be would benefit from no quarantine hotels if they're fully vaccinated. Uh Although because extended family wasn't specified in today's uh, press uh, press conference, I reached out to the sources I have and they have said that immediate family and extended family are considered exempt if they are fully vaccinated with the big with the four uh, vaccines that uh, Health Canada approves of. So that's AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, and Moderna. There's also the aspect of pre and post testing that must be done. Uh, t- uh, however, it does appear that uh, immediate and extended family members will be able to enter Canada without the hotel quarantine with safe testing. What about family members that are under the age of 12 that don't qualify for vaccination? So that was, thank you for asking. So that wasn't brought up in today's press conference. So this, again, had to go through sources. Now, the current orders in council, if someone is exempt, if the parent of someone under the age of 12 is exempt from hotel quarantine, uh, those, those children were already exempt. So I asked this question specifically to my sources, and the answer was, if you are exempt from vaccination coming into Canada, your children under the age of 12 will also be as well from the hotel quarantine, which is really positive news for a number of uh, families uh, with children who have suffered disproportionately given the challenges of the pandemic, keeping families apart and having that isolation on top of all the challenges kids are facing already. All right. Well, that that is good news because I, I can't imagine that would the, the stress of that if you were in that scenario, but you didn't know because it's not that your child's choosing not to get vaccinated. It's that your child mm. can't get vaccinated. Correct. And throw in another Zoom breakout room and you can't imagine the amount of stress they have. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> uh, we haven't been told a specific date, though. Uh, the minister is saying hopefully this is going to happen the start of July. Uh, there were also some questions about what exact proof people are going to need when they get to the border. And Dominic LeBlanc, the intergovernmental affairs minister, uh, said basically they're working on it. But there's also a chance that won't be ready in time when this new policy comes into place. Is that concerning? So the Faces of Advocacy uh, worked very hard and we're very lucky to have contacts in the ministry actually have meetings as we went towards our extended family and compassion exemptions. The 
the policy can be good, but the operationalizing of it must be just as good. And so the question is, how is it going to happen? That needs to be worked out by early July. And so to any of your listeners here, there are two things that I'd like to uh, convey. Number one, uh, that if you are feeling disenfranchised, forgotten, or alone in this whole situation, please join us on social media. That's Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, at Faces of Advocacy, because we'll work towards building a better program. And then the second thing is that I do believe that the ministry workers are doing their best to create a good program. There will be some bumps here and there, uh, but we really are trying our best to work together in a collaborative way to have a seamless and smooth transition to a post-COVID world. Uh, Were you given any idea, because one of the questions that I've been hearing as well is, yes, the government is working on documentation, the proof that will be required Mm. when you arrive at the airport, whatever airport you arrive at. Uh, But when people get a vaccine, at least here, when you go and get that shot, whether it's your first shot or your second shot, you do get either a piece of paper or a card showing that you've been immunized. So is that not enough to show at the border? So... um, This was a question that we had when it came to extended families. Uh, Is not a notarized letter from a lawyer enough to prove that this is my fiancé, this is my sister, this is my parent? Um, However, they've implemented a system that required governmental uh, checkmark. Now, let's take a look internationally. The EU, because the country themselves in their national systems, um, individual national systems, are doing the vaccinations. They already have a database, and that's what's going to become their QR code, their green pass. so Canada doesn't quite have that, neither does, from my understanding, the U.S. Um, in that centralized thing, because you can go to a pharmacy, you go to a different place. Iceland, which is doing something similar to what Canada is about to do, is they have that proof, but you also have the, the testing as well. So for those who uh, are concerned about what uh, paperwork has to be shown when they arrive, uh, please know that the pre-testing and the post-testing does help supplement that safety to the Canadians. And uh, I've mentioned this specifically to ministries of health and IRCC today, but we are hoping not for a giant bureaucratic uh, system to prove vaccination status. Uh, Canadians uh, are not traveling uh, to reunite with families for kicks. Not, we're not doing it fraudulently. We're just trying to be together. Which makes sense. Are you hearing from people or are there any concerns from people, again, not just children under the age of 12, but perhaps adults with a medical condition or for whatever reason are not getting vaccinated, feeling that they're not being listened to or that they are going to be negatively impacted by this? So this brings us to where to go from here. Um, If the process goes as it has been discussed today, that's very good for a lot of Canadian families. But we cannot forget those who cannot reunite under the current conditions. And that would include those who cannot get uh, vaccinated for, for example, medical reasons. And I'm really glad you asked that question. So the recent priority strategies released by the federal government through a commissioned series of expert scientists say that hotel quarantine should be discontinued flat out, whether or not you're vaccinated or not, because home quarantine is not shown to be significantly worse or worse at all compared to hotel quarantine. So for those people, there should be an option to be able to come into Canada, safely quarantine at home, because they also deserve to be with family. 
And and that you're right. That was even the government's own panel of experts had suggested Correct. that to get the get rid of the hotel quarantine. That's not something that's necessary. Um, I got an email from somebody as well. This is a uh, somebody coming back to Canada from the Philippines. Uh, I think I, mm. I know this question from what Patty Haidu, the health minister, said earlier, uh, wondering if she would be required to quarantine a, in a hotel. She's been vaccinated, but she's been vaccinated with Sinovac, which isn't one of the ones that's been approved in Canada. Yes. So there are a lot of binational families and a lot of those binational families will come from countries uh, that will either use uh, the, the Russian vaccine or the Chinese vaccine. Now, I cannot come to your show as I'm not an expert. I can't tell you whether or not these vaccines are, are as good as the other ones or why Health Canada should approve them. But what I can say is that there must be a plan for those who are unvaccinated and there must be a plan for those who don't have the same vaccine as the big four, because these are important Canadians too. We've had a big step taken today. Let's continue to press forward and help those who are still uh, apart. And so if the government of Canada's own scientists say hotel quarantine should be stopped, I think that's a very good first step to take. And that's not just for the vaccinated. Do you think it would be fair then or would it be okay then for people that do have either vaccine that's not been approved by Health Canada or aren't vaccinated that are coming back that they would still have to quarantine, maybe not at a hotel, but would still have to quarantine for 14 days at a home or in some one particular location? I defer to people much smarter than me. That's the same <laughs> panel we're talking about. They say for those who are unvaccinated, do pre-testing post-testing uh, and continue and then continue to test until negative after a threshold, uh, that threshold could be reduced to seven days, according to that expert panel. So uh, if you are not vaccinated with the big four, that is probably an appropriate place to be uh, if, when I follow the guidelines that they say. <laughs> uh, so uh, all in all, listening to what was announced today, and again, given that we don't have a, an exact date and we don't know what this uh, vaccine passport might look like or when that might be available, would you say this is a positive step? Overall, if the plan works, this is a very positive step. So right now, the faces of advocacy are going to be working on operationalizing this and making sure the system works. So anyone feeling disenfranchised or forgotten, please join us in the campaign at Faces of Advocacy, and we will press forward together. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time, uh, Dr. Poon, for joining us uh, to join us and talk more about this. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Please call me David. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> All right. That is David Edward Oipun, founder of Faces for Advocacy. Again, if you want to check out that website, it is facesofadvocacy.com and you can learn all about that group and find out exactly how to get in contact if you want to get in contact with them.